the most famous photo I've ever shot easily right now is the one of Freddie, ah. uh, where he's bending back with all of Wembley Stadium in the background. Yeah. Because Freddie Mercury is now the most famous guy who's ever lived on the planet. I mean, he's right up there. You got Jesus Christ, <laughs> Socrates, Genghis Khan, whatever, Freddie Mercury. But uh, that's become the photo. And that was actually the third frame I shot that day. Brian Smith here, and welcome to the Dream Path Podcast, where I try to get inside the heads of talented creatives from all over the world. My goal is to demystify and humanize the creative process and make it accessible to everyone. Now let's jump in. Neil Preston's on the show. Neil is one of the most important and iconic music photographers in the world. You may not have heard his name before now, but if you go to his website, PrestonPictures.com, you'll see images that have been burned into your musical consciousness since you were a kid. I'm talking The Who, Led Zeppelin, Jimi Hendrix, Bob Dylan, Michael Jackson, Freddie Mercury, Queen, David Bowie, Frank Sinatra, U2, Hart, Mariah Carey, Dr. Dre, Bruce Springsteen, Stevie Nicks, The Sex Pistols, and Madonna, among others. These photos are not just one-offs. They're not lucky snapshots. They are the product of a photographer who knows that in order to capture the essence of a star, you have to embed yourself in their world. And that means not just showing up when the concert starts and shooting them on stage or backstage. It means going on tour with the band, driving on the same buses, flying on the same planes, staying at the same hotels, and being there to capture the shot that defines an era in music. Neil is a rare breed of photographer who has dedicated his life to the craft of a very specific and intimate form of photography, capturing images that create a sense of immortality for the icons many of us grew up looking up to, revering, and even worshiping. Neil's book, Exhilarated and Exhausted, is available wherever you get books. And if you're a fan of rock music from any decade over the last 50 years, there's something in this book for you. I ordered it before the interview and read it cover to cover. It feels like it weighs about 10 pounds, and it is a thing of beauty. His latest book, Queen, the Neil Preston Photographs, will be released on October 29th, just in time for the holidays. It's a collection of photographs of Queen on tour and in the studio many of which have never been seen, with writings by Brian May, Roger Taylor, and Neil, revealing stories behind the pictures. As you can probably imagine, after touring with bands like Led Zeppelin and Queen over the last 50 years, Neil has a lot of stories, some of which could be a bit salty for children's ears. So if you're listening with an earshot of children, you may want to put on headphones for some of these stories, especially the one about the time he took Valium during a Led Zeppelin concert and had a run-in with John Bonham after the show. That one's a doozy. So without further ado, let's jump into my chat with legendary photographer, Neil Preston. Neil Preston, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's a, it's a real honor. And uh, I know that when we were chatting to set up this interview, we discovered some mutual connections that mean that we have some things in common to talk about. One being that you are best friends with Cameron Crowe, right? That I am. I know, I know Cameron since he was 14 and a half or 15. Yeah. Something like that. All, all I know is he wasn't even old enough to have a learner's permit, much less a driver's <laughs> license. And that's, so, when he, that's when he became the youngest uh, writer for Rolling Stone? Correct. Can you tell my listeners briefly how that meeting happened and how it turned into the friendship that it did? Well, very simply, 
the, I mean, the, it's funny because I, I can recall almost everything that ever happened on every shoot I ever did. But when it comes to stuff like this, it's a little murky. Um, essentially, uh, well, I, let's see. I moved to L.A. in 71, a year after I graduated high school. So I met Cameron probably at the end of 72. Uh, my girlfriend at the time was a PR agent for rock bands, and she brought home uh, a copy of a, what was then an underground newspaper called the San Diego Door, kind of the San, Di San Diego's version of the Village Voice, et cetera, et cetera. And she said, read this article. I don't remember who the article was about. And I said, it's not bad. She said it was written by a kid who's 14. It was, which was the, the, then astounding because it was really written well. And uh, I think the camera and I first actually met at a, at a show either in Long Beach or in San Diego. And um, he writes the intro or the foreword of my book. And he, when he's, and he tells the story of first meeting me, I was in the middle of shooting and I kind of blew him off <laughs> because I was, I was in the, you know, I was working in, in the, the zone. zone. Yeah. So, um, but um, we became really friendly. I mean, he had my sense of humor, exactly. And um, I'm five years older than he is. But, it, you know, it was, he was a peer. You know, he was a brother. And, um, and I started working on all his Rolling Stone interview um, pieces that he did. I'd go along as a photographer. I'd pick him up at the Greyhound station in downtown L.A., <laughs> Cause he couldn't drive <laughs> and we'd go to the riot house and, you know, he'd talk to Eric or Jeff Beck or, you know, Burton Cummings, Mark Boland, you know, everybody. And, um, as I like to say, we've been together ever since. That's awesome. His, the forward that he wrote for your book is just so it really encapsulates uh, a beautiful friendship. I think. It makes me cry every time when, when, when he quotes the Pete Townsend stuff at the end of the piece, I mean, you know, he, well, he knows me better than my blood sister knows me. So that, that says it all. But uh, it's, it's, and we're, we're closer than ever right now, too, with, with everything that's going on. With that Broadway show that he wrote and that you shot, right? Well, well yeah. The, well, the Broadway show, this is the 20th anniversary of the release of the movie, Almost Famous. And, um, you know, we had a lot of stuff planned. Um, regarding almost famous and the anniversary we had some photo exhibitions lined up we were gonna throw a big party for the cast at a gallery in new york and you know everything got blown off mm -hmm. so um but you know i've i've worked on all his movies since all almost famous and i worked on roadies and you know, we've, we've always had a lot of irons in the fire together and more, now more than ever so uh, you know, it's unusual to have a good friend for a year, not to mention a best friend for 50 years or 49 or whatever it is. So Well said. That is so true. Yeah. My connection to Cameron is I, I was uh, telling you briefly on our phone call before setting up this interview that my dad introduced me to Cameron backstage at a heart concert in the mid 80s. Ah. Right. And um, <laughs> the way he introduced me, because my dad was the tour pilot for, for heart. Ah, um, Greg, he, Greg. He, yeah, Greg Smith. Right. And, um, he introduced me, he said, Brian, this is Mr. Crow. And, and he wrote 
Fast Times at Richmond High. And the way he did that is he went undercover as a high school student. And, and I was just, I think I was preteen or, or, you know, just early teens at that point, maybe 14 or 15. Right in the demographics, baby. And I was just, <laughs> oh, I had seen Fast Times at Ridgemont High, of course, and I'm looking at this iconic figure and I'm thinking, wow, I was so impressed. And he's such a humble guy. Yeah, yeah. Uh, not, not someone you would look at and say that, you know, he emanates, uh, you know, rock star vibes or something. He's just so humble and, and sweet. No, no, he's normal. Well, as I like to say, you know, he and I were both normal. And uh, one thing, it's, one thing it's, it's funny about Cameron is he's on TV a lot, so people recognize him. People may know I'm not famous, okay? I'm known to a little sliver of the rock and roll crowd, so to speak. But Cameron's a very famous writer-director, and if we're out somewhere to dinner, walking around, whatever, his fans will slide up to him, you know, very timidly. Mr. Crow, you know, and he's always, he wants to know what the fans think of everything he's done and what, you know, what they, what they're into, what they're not into it. Some of the conversations I've heard him have with fans are just unbelievable. You know, um, he, lo he loves that, but not because of the adulation, but because he, he treasures their input. Yeah, he's just genuinely interested in, in yeah. connecting with his fans and, and the, his crowd. And, 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 he, and he's a fan, you know, and, and which is part of what Almost Famous is about. It's, a, you know, there's that, well, you're familiar with the movie, but there's that, that speech that Feruza gives towards the end of the movie. She's talking to Billy Crudup, and she says, do you have any idea what it means to love a band or a piece of music so much that it hurts? Mm. And it's one of my favorite lines he's ever written. And, you know, we're fans of who we're fans of. I mean, if I looked outside and Pete Townsend was walking down the street, I'd, I'd be off with these headphones and out the door, baby. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not kidding. My, my friends know I'm not kidding. So, um, you know, we're fans. Yeah, that's, it's an interesting um, – you, you talk a little bit about that in your book, which I, I read – Cover to cover, by the way, this week. I got it in the, the mail on Monday. And that would be called Neil Preston, Exhilarated and Exhausted. Exactly. Neil Preston, Exhilarated and Exhausted. And I'm going to put a link uh, to the book in my show notes, as well as um, pre-order of your Queen book, which we'll talk great. about in the interview as well. Right. Great. One thing I did n notice in your introduction was hero worship. You talked about motivation for getting into rock and roll and how your your father and the work that he did and your right. backstage experience on Broadway really paved the way for you vocationally in terms of where your comfort zone is. Can you tell us more about that? Absolutely. Well, my dad was uh, was a very big deal in the Broadway musical theater in the Broadway musical theater world. He was a the original stage manager for The King and I, My Fair Lady, Camelot, Fiddler on the Roof you know, and a bunch of others I'm forgetting. Um, so, you know, my fondest and warmest, cuddliest memories uh, of being a kid or, or when I was old enough to get on the subway in Forest Hills and go into Manhattan and visit my dad at the theater on a Saturday in between the matinee and the evening show. And he used to take me to Horn and Hard Arts Automat, where, I mean, no one will remember this, but you used to put a couple of quarters in this little thing and you'd pull out a sandwich. <laughs> it was revolutionary. It was probably built in the 20s, but 
uh, we used to go there and then, and I used to stand in the wings and, and next to him, as he called lighting cues, you know, as early as I can remember, I used to do that. So, um, and my dad would, every time I'd come to the theater, he'd always introduce me again to all the stagehands, all the actors. He'd take me downstairs where all the chorus girls were getting made up and everything, which, you know, a 13-year-old boy will find intoxicating, to say the <laughs> least. Probably why I love girls with a lot of makeup. But, um, you, you know, it was home. And being backstage with my dad in any theater was home. And to this day, it's not because of you know, who I am or what I do or anything, but I always feel more at home when I'm backstage at any venue, whether it's a 300 seat club or 300,000 people on a, you know, a farm somewhere. It's just that that's what I grew up around. It's an interesting dynamic that early childhood experiences and exposures to those types of things can be formative Mm -hmm. and the choices that you make, you know? Yeah. Well, it's always about mommy and daddy. You know, yeah. I was talking about this last night with a good friend of mine. You know, it all goes back to mommy and daddy. But I, I didn't realize, probably until I wrote that piece for the book, how much that affected me, and 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 how um, ingrained in me uh, lighting became, theatrical lighting and performance and emotion. And I, I have a saying I talk about with photography. It's not the motion, it's the emotion that counts. Yeah. And, and it's funny because as I wrote the stuff for my book, all that came flooding back to me. I thought that picking out the pictures for the book was going to be easy and writing it was going to be the tough part. Boy, did I have it upside down. <laughs> you know, I mean, the words came out of me like, like one of those, you know, fire hydrants in the middle of the summer in New York City. They knock over and it starts gushing out water. You know, the words came out of me like that. And picking the photos after three days, I sent a hard drive to my picture editor. I said, you do it. I can't look at this stuff. Yeah. I would describe this as when you first see it and you feel it, the weight of the book, exhilarated and exhausted. It's a coffee table book, which is normally a book that you don't read cover to cover. You, you right. pick it up if you're sitting there with friends and you may flip through it. And to be honest, most people don't look at coffee table books very often and right you know they're more decoration but this one exactly substantively i found is fascinating because you're going into you're really doing a deep dive into your own psychology and also dispelling a lot of myths about people what people think about what your job probably entails that's exactly you hit the nail on the head and i thank you for that because the whole book project was an exercise in me wanting to tell the story of my job, not about me. Nobody cares where I was born or what I did, you know, here or there, blah, blah, blah. But I wanted it to be about my job because people think I have the glamour job of the 20th, 21st century, and not so much, you know? It's stressful. The travel will kill you if everything else doesn't. The deadlines are sacrosanct and never end. You know, your job might just start when the show's over. Uh, I mean, it's all that stuff. And I wanted it to be funny. I wanted it to have my kind of snarky sense of humor, which I most definitely have. And there's things that people never think about, you know, 
don't bring your girlfriend on stage or your, or, or your significant other or your wife or your brother or, or anybody. You know, have your laminate clearly in view because you cannot argue with a part-time wrestler at UCLA who's doing security when the who are playing 10 and a half feet away from you. <laughs> you know, and my favorite line is when the, when the crew loads out after the show, get out of their way. You do not want to be impaled by a forklift because you're trying to impress some girl from Memphis you'll never see again. And I speak from experience about that. Well, yeah. I speak about experience and everything in the book is, is exactly what goes through my mind and what happens when you have a job like mine. Yeah, it's definitely dispels the myth of the glamorous lifestyle of being on the road with bands. Not that there's not some glamour involved. Yeah, well, if you're flying on a private jet with Led Zeppelin, uh, I would imagine that there's some degree of glamour that's going to rub off on, on you and, and you have this access that is just uh, stunning in terms of you know the personalities that you're hanging out with. Yeah, well, th this is true, but um, you know, I've, I've done a lot of interviews where, where uh, you know, almost to, to a man, everyone's asked me, so you had a lot of fun, wink, wink, with Led Zeppelin. <laughs> and I right. always have, uh, tell them the same thing. If you're using the word fun as a euphemism for sex and drugs, I had far more fun with REO Speedwagon. <laughs> it's true. Or Foreigner, or Hart, for that matter. Or you, or you name them, you know. Right. So. Can you tell us briefly about the infamous time that John Bonham Ugh. insisted that you do something that you didn't want to do, and then they took action. Yeah, I'll tell, I'll tell that story. Uh, there's no secrets here. <laughs> that was, uh, I, I remember, it's so funny that I remember all this like it was yesterday. We had done a one-off show in St. Louis because Robert had been sick for the original scheduled date, so after we finished the leg of the tour, we had to do this one-off in St. Louis. So we flew on the plane from Newark to St. Louis, landed, did the show. All I wanted to do was sleep. I mean, I've been on the road for four and a half weeks with them at this point, averaging maybe, you know, 77 minutes of sleep a night for various reasons, kids. And um, so during the first encore, I dropped one 10 milligram Valium in the limo on the way to the airport a second one. And as I went up the steps and put my camera bag down, I took a third one. 30 milligrams of Valium coursing through my veins. I'd get up, I'd get a little something to like a Coke and a little something to eat. And I'm now it's, now it's hit me. Now I'm woo really woozy. And I've got my area on the couch staked out. And all of a sudden, a very drunk John Bonham comes up to me and says, let's see your your knob. <laughs> is this a family channel or can I use? Oh, uh, yeah, this. Yeah, okay, you can yeah. use profanity. He said, let's see your fucking knob. And Woozy Neil kind of laughed nervously because, I mean, there was a reason that Bonzo's nickname was the Beast. I mean, <laughs> nicest guy, country gentleman when he was sober. Yeah. However, 180 degrees when he wasn't. So I kind of laughed nervously, which I think enraged him. And he said, I said, let's see your fucking knob. And all of a sudden, three of our security guys, all of whom were off-duty New York City cops, by the way, and packing, not that that mattered, decided to wrestle me to the ground and 
deep pants me, take off every piece of clothing. And this was not a fight I was going to win sober. Okay? <laughs> yeah. These are three cops, essentially. And uh, as I wrote the book, the thing I remember was looking up from the ground to see a somewhat amused Jimmy Page looking at me, clearly not impressed with what he was seeing. <laughs> <laughs> You know, uh, now now that's a twenty million dollar lawsuit. Yeah, no kidding. That's a crime now, probably. What well, you know, it was I mean, a crime then, but yeah. You know, yeah but you well, don't you don't want to get you know, you can't act like you're the fifth member of the band and I write that in the book. Yeah. It, it it just doesn't work. And uh if you do act like you're the fifth member of Zeppelin or the Beatles or the thirty second member of Earth, Wind and Fire or whatever. The thing you're going to get slipped under your hotel room door is not the rooming list for tomorrow night's hotel. It's going to be your one-way ticket home. So, right. you know, and I was 22 or 23 when I started working for Zeppelin. So, you know, you keep your eyes and ears open and your mouth shut in situations like that. And that's what lets you keep your job. You have to deliver the goods, of course. And... um I, I like to always say that, you know, my job is to really be invisible. Nobody bats an eyelash if the drum roadie walks into the dressing room or the guitar roadie. I, yes, I know roadie's a dated word, but so be it. And no one should bat an eyelash when, when uh, the photographer walks in. And the, the irony of it is to become invisible, you must be visible at all times. That's how it works. You're just ubiquitous. You're a fixture. Yeah, well, you become a part of the fabric of, of the tour. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and, and every rock tour has its own personality, which is different than the, the sum of the parts. I mean, you know, with Zeppelin, we had six very, very strong personalities that I had to deal with. Four band members, Peter Grant, our manager, and Richard Cole, our tour manager. And, you know, the personality of a rock tour can turn on a dime. I don't care if it's the Stones, the Who, Emerson, Lake, and Palmer, you name it. Uh, due to a bad review, a bad concert review, what the band uh, feels is a, is a bad show, the drummer got the clap from the guitar player's wife, <laughs> you know, I mean, all kinds of things, you know, an interview, they feel they were misquoted. Anything can happen. So, Part of my job over and above what I do with my cameras is having to kind of take the, the temperature of a tour every, every so often because it affects, you know, people's moods. And, but the good, the good thing is it's like the weather in Hawaii. It, it'll rain at 1 o'clock, but by 2 o'clock it'll be sunny. You know? <laughs> so the, the business of photography, Neil, I'm curious about the dynamic, the business dynamic where – you are on tour with a band. Are you an employee of the band? Do your photos are they are they property of the band? Are they can you sell the photos separately? How did that work? Uh, generally, well, there are a few artists I've worked with who uh, would only do what's called a buyout, where they pay you more money than you would normally get paid, and they own everything. Do you turn it over, copyright, and everything? Whitney was one one of those people. Neil Diamond. Whitney Houston and Neil Diamond? Yeah, Neil. Um, you know, Neil's got an awesome archive because he owns every photo probably that he ever had taken of himself. But uh, aside from them, and, I'm, and I know there's more people that do that now, 
uh, I would get paid a weekly salary from Zeppelin. I own all the photos. Queen, we co-owned the photos together. Uh, we did a deal way back when. And, um, you know, and all, the times I've been on the road with a band for magazines, whether it be Time or Newsweek or People, that's all my stuff. I own everything. So uh, essentially, 99% of everything I've shot, I own. Oh, that's nice. And did you make that decision early on in your career consciously, or did it just kind of unfold like that? It kind of unfolded like that. Um, in 1977, so I'd been in the business, what, eight years or so, I thought to myself, I don't want to be like 45 years old waiting for the Rolling Stones to go on tour. Ah, uh, you know. Yeah. So um, I used to see this uh, agency credit, Camera 5, which was a big New York picture agency uh, owned by one of my dearest friends in the world, may he rest in peace, Ken Regan. And I called Ken Cold one day and said, I want to join Camera 5 because I've, I consider myself a photojournalist at heart. And it just so happened that one of the Camera 5 guys in LA was unhappy and and I hooked up with uh, Ken, and, and Ken became my big brother for till the day he died, you know. But I learned kind of everything I know about the magazine business. I learned from Ken. And uh, he was a very important mentor and friend. And if I talk about him a little more, I'm going to burst into tears. So, yeah, <laughs> you know, but I mean, uh, a lot of it, I mean, I picked up along the way. I mean, it's, it was fairly obvious you know, it's like if you're a musician, don't sell your publishing until it's worth so much money, it doesn't matter and you'll take the money and run. Right. If you're a photographer, don't sell your copyright. You know, I figured it out early on. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. Um, and they don't teach that stuff in college. You know, as far as I know, I mean, I didn't go to college. Uh, I was accepted to three of them and, and almost went to Philadelphia College of Art. But, uh, decided not to because I was already working and I'd already been published. And I was a junior in high school when I first got published. So um, I walked into my mom and dad's uh, bedroom one day on a Sunday and I said, okay, I'll go pick up the Sunday times and the dry cleaning. Not going to go to college and I'll get the locks of bagels. <laughs> and, you know, I kind of tried to slip them a knuckleball and they were strangely okay with it because I had already, they could see, some of the fruits of my labor starting to happen. So has the, has the business of photography become more challenging with the advent of everyone having a pretty high quality camera in their phone all the time, the ubiquity of, of photographs online, that type of thing? Well, that's a hardware issue. What's the, what really changed the business of photography more than anything was not having a camera in your pocket. It's how photographs are delivered to clients, transmitted. You know, back in the old days, we, I'd shoot something for you know, Rolling Stone or whomever, Time, Newsweek. I mean, I had Time Life contract for uh, 20 years. But you'd send in all the film and they'd, have, they'd process it in New York and it'd all be like slides or black and white eggs and proof sheets. And then when you, when you get the stuff back and, and syndicate the material, you'd make prints for all your agents. And, you know, you're constantly making duplicate prints, duplicate slides, et cetera, et cetera. Now it's just transmit. 
and that sorry that really changed the business more than anything you know the the first people to embrace digital photography were really the sports photographers and then the paparazzi and uh i've shot six olympics and i remember the first time i ever used digital equipment was in i think salt lake in 2002 if i'm not mistaken and i hated it i still hate digital cameras <laughs> but um that's a whole nother movie uh, but that, that's what really changed the business of photography is the way the material was delivered and and now the the, the pure proliferation of photographs everywhere is both a, a curse and a blessing i mean there are some extremely talented people out there that you would never know about if you didn't happen upon their photography how do you happen upon it though you have to be out there looking for it i mean it's everywhere yeah and i i also have to say one thing that changed the business was the rise of getty and uh please use this in a trailer or whatever but getty is the devil <laughs> okay getty is the devil complete with the horns and a trident all right why is that because they bought up all these little picture agencies to gain market share and they sell photos for five dollars and they steal photos and i don't care if they're i i i welcome their legal department to come after me they sell stuff that they don't have the rights to sell and uh, they have a virtual monopoly i used to be with corvus which was owned by bill gates hmm. they, they were the big rival to getty Getty's strength was in advertising photography and Corbus's strength was in editorial because Bill Gates had bought what was then called the Bettman Archives, which in fact was the photo collection of uh, UPI, United Press International. And all the shit was sitting in a warehouse in North Hollywood. And he bought, he bought it all and started a picture agency named Corbus that he sold to the Chinese about six, seven years ago. Oh, wow. To a Chinese media conglomerate, but Getty. Uh, well, I know some a friend of mine in London who's a photographer. I'm not going to name any names, but he was with a, an agency that migrated their stuff over to Getty when Getty bought them out. And he said the first sales report I got from Getty, they had sold more pictures than I had ever sold through the old agency in a month. The check they sent me was less than any check I had gotten from the old agency. <laughs> oh I rest gosh. my case. They are the devil, and they should be ashamed of themselves, and I hope they go out of business. So do you, do you find, though... And How do you really feel? <laughs> yeah, sorry. So pre-COVID, and I know COVID has changed the business for who knows how long, but... Changed the business. This cramps my style, baby. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> for listeners, he's putting on a mask there. Yeah, yeah. But, but so pre-COVID, was there still a demand for your caliber of photography and presence on tours like Rolling Stones tours and ACDC and all these big acts that have huge arena tours? Yeah. Uh, yes. The answer is yes. Of course, the bean counters run the world. Yeah. And the bean counters don't like to have someone on the road for three weeks. They like to have someone around for 30 seconds, you know? Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I turned down a lot of stuff because I'm not going to work for free. I mean, the Rolling Stones don't pay anybody. I turned down the Rolling Stones Steel Wheels tour because, uh, because the, the, the tour account said, well, we'll pay uh, 
film processing travel uh, PD, which is per diem, and we'll kick you back some photos to syndicate. And I said, how about my fee? <laughs> and he said, well, we'll pay the film processing travel expenses, kick you back some photos to syndicate. I said, how about my fee? He said, well, we don't pay, you know, we don't pay photographers. Mm. I said, well, I got to turn that deal down. Coincidentally, three weeks later, I had to shoot a, a Rolling Stone magazine cover of the Stones who had won the Reader's Poll or something for best live act that year. And I, and I saw the PR girl and I said, thank you for recommending me, but I had to turn the deal down. I'm sure I'm not the first person who's turned it down. And she said, yeah, you were. Whoa. <laughs> and I said, well, I'm in good company then. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I think that <laughs> true story, what you've demonstrated, Neil, over the last 50 years is that the importance of embedding yourself with the band to be able to get those candid shots, because you were there during these very intimate, vulnerable moments that somebody who's a contract photographer, just who is in the city that the concert is playing in and, Hey, can you come in for an hour and shoot? You're not going to get this level of photography unless you're there with the band you know almost 24 7 highly unlikely uh and i'm not going to say all those guys are hacks because they're not all hacks and there's, there's some really talented guys and girls of course i use the term guys you know universally but um when it comes to i will say when it comes to live performance photography i'm pretty much the best around and i would not say that about me in any other context and I know it. It's just for whatever reason, it's in my DNA. And the only other photographer whose live stuff looks like mine, and he's a friend of mine, is Ethan Russell, hmm. who is an incredibly, I mean, I still, when I see his name come up on my phone, I still get nervous. I mean, he's one of my idols, you know, but he's a friend and his stuff reminds me of mine. And that's, I don't know, it's just the way I shoot has a certain look to it. You know, I tend to like dramatic, silhouette -y things. I mean, any, anyone can plot their iPhone and go in the pit and shoot a picture of so-and-so at the mic and have it tacked sharp and perfectly exposed. You can do it. My dog can do it, pretty much. Right. I just put his paw on the phone, you know? But, um, <laughs> but uh, you know, it's... There's a quote in your book, and I want to read it to the listeners because uh, I think it encapsulates what you just said there really well. You say, shooting live music performances is something few photographers do really well. I just happened to discover one day that I was pretty good at it. You can't teach it. You can't learn it. You just do it. One part love of photography, one part love of music, one part love of theater and theatrical lighting, one part hero worship, one part timing, and 95 parts instinct. Yep. I just thought that was a great quote. Yeah, well... I like that quote too, and I can't believe I wrote it, but it's really true. Yeah. Because it's all those things. But, and, you know, timing in life, timing is almost everything. As I like to say, you, you meet a gorgeous girl on Monday, she hates her guts. You meet her on Thursday, you know, let's go to Mexico together. <laughs> and, and instinct, it's, you know, it's in your DNA. I mean, when you're around very, 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 talented or maybe not so talented artists when you're around artists you know they do what they do and if i'm there to document what they do then i have to be able to do that the way i do it 
without impinging on their space and their creativity. So uh, my personality allows me, you know, I pretty much can get along with anybody. And I'm a fan. I'm a fan of music. I'm not necessarily a fan of every band I've ever worked for, but you know, I just knew from day one, it felt normal being around those people. As you may have noticed, there are great resources and advice mentioned in all our episodes. And for many of them, we actually collect all of these resources for you in one easy place, our newsletter. You can go to dreampathpod.com slash newsletter to join. It's not fancy, just an email about each week's episode, featured artists, and resources to help you on your journey. Now, back to the interview. Talking about instincts, Neil, mm -hmm. the rooftop shoot of Stevie Nicks, which is documented in your book, mm -hmm. uh, seems to be a perfect example of your instincts where you're working with a very precarious situation on the edge of this building and a six-foot you know, or six-story fall if something goes wrong. Yep. But also, you're, you're taking the wind and this, this situation that other photographers may think is just, we need to scrap this thing. This isn't going to work. Mm. And you turn it into this really iconic shoot. So how, how do you think photographers who are just starting out and they want to work in this space train themselves to be instinctive? Is it something that you can learn or is it just something that you are born with? Well, it's probably somewhat of a combination of both those things, but I think that it's probably weighted more towards something you're born with. I mean, it's when you have a job like I have, when you're a photographer, you, you have to always ask you every, every day is a different shoot. Every, you know, every day it's another chance to start your life again, whatever you want to say, but what's the, what's the assignment? What's the end use? What am I going for? Are we trying to get a live album cover? Are we trying to get a magazine cover? Are we blah, blah, blah. So that's always got to be number one in your thinking. When I'm given an assignment, the first thing that comes to my mind and the first question I always ask, always, is what's my deadline? Because deadlines are sacrosanct. And I might need every bit of that week or so till I have to turn the, the finished product in. There, you know, and there's perseverance involved. In the, in the book, there's a story about following Sly Stone around for like eight days or something and shooting seven rolls of film. You know, I can shoot seven rolls of film in the time it takes to say seven rolls of film. But, uh, you, you know, you, especially when you shoot for magazines, there's a word you don't hear that often, magazines. <laughs> Last time I looked at Newsweek, it was like 12 pages. <laughs> but, uh, you, you know, you've got to deliver the goods. And, you know, instinctively when you've kind of got it it's in the can and the rest is gravy you know let's take it another step further and stevie's the kind of person that will always say let's shoot some more let's shoot some more let's shoot some more you know the the the, the only bad thing i'll ever say about stevie who's a friend of mine i love her to death is you walk in her closet and there's so much stuff there and she'll say well what do you think about this what do you think about this what do you think well, this looks great i'm you know, and that'll go on for five hours. <laughs> and, and, you know, but that's her, you know. Yeah. But she'll always want to go the extra mile. And she's the most creative person I know. And so shooting with her is just so much fun. And, you know, sometimes 
things don't work out, like the Motley Crue shoot on the glacier that I wrote about. Right. Good idea on paper, not such a good idea when you're in the chopper and the and the pilot says, "Oh, it's going to be uh, minus 14 there." <laughs> well, I hadn't fucking thought of that. I mean, you know, I don't know why I didn't think of that, but you know, I took one Polaroid and pulled it out of the film holder and it cracked in two like an icicle. Right. So, you know, you got to you got to punt, you know, you got to come up with something else. And, you know, just when you think you've seen it all, you find out you haven't. Mm -hmm. And I pretty much have seen it all, but there'll be some, there'll be a pothole somewhere down the road soon. So currently, and I know I'm jumping around a little bit here, but currently is your, is your equipment, your go-to equipment mainly digital or are you still shooting film? Uh, It's mainly digital. Um, Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> well, it, well, and I'll tell you why. The mag, well, magazines have all gone digital. The first magazine to go fully digital, by the way, was Sports Illustrated because they they realized that I think they they put the the magazine to bed on Tuesday mornings or Wednesday mornings. I can't, I I don't recall, but uh, they figured they realized they could get an extra days worth of coverage in the magazine. For instance, they could get Monday Night Football in. Uh, as opposed to having all the Sunday, uh, the Monday night film come in, having to soup it in the Time Life Lab, and, and the magazines already gone to press. So they've all the magazines are digital, and and now the movie studios. When when I work on Cameron's movies, they're not set up for for a film workflow anymore. Right, they're only set up for digital workflows. So in the old days, for instance, on Vanilla Sky. I'd have a dozen proof sheets made of every roll of black and white. And, you know, except, except for me, except for Tom Cruise, except for Cameron and the producers, you know, blah, blah, blah. Now all the, the actors do all their kills and approvals and everything on secure websites. Mm. So the studios are not set up for a film workflow. They, they used to develop the film, cut the film into strips and then with a little uh, calligraphy pen, would write the, on each strip of negatives the name of the production, the pr- production number, and photographer, you know. Yeah. But the, the last movie I was able to shoot film on was Elizabethtown, I think, mm. which was 06, or, or was it the zoo? It was, we bought a zoo. I think I had to shoot it. I don't remember, but it's back there. Yeah. Back in time. I mean, I'll, I'll back some. I'll, I'll back up with film here and there. I mean, I'll bust out my X fan or something, but ever it, it throws all the production people into a tizzy because they don't know where are we going to get a process or <laughs> what are we going to do. You know, I don't like the way digital pictures look. I think they look too. Well, my friend Woody has a saying: they look brittle. Mm-hmm. They're so sharp, they look like they could snap in two. And I fully agree with him. Not to mention the fact there's so many bells and whistles on those stupid things, which you pay for that. I'll never use much less the people out there. So, mm-hmm. yeah. One thing I noticed, I, I found some old negatives from 30 years ago and I got them developed. There's only one place in town that even does it anymore. And I took those negatives in thinking, oh, this is an old point and shoot camera. It's, it's not going to be high quality. And mm-hmm. I was blown away at the resolution, the crispness, yeah. that how great these images were from 30 years ago. Well, yeah. I mean, now that you can scan negatives i mean let's just say the the first part of my career maybe not every photo was perfectly exposed yeah <laughs> but with, through the wonders of scanning 
I can take a neg that's three and a half stops underexposed, and all of a sudden, it's like having this weird time capsule that all of a sudden Janis Joplin's up on your screen, and it's like I've never seen that photo because it was never printable. So and so, new technology is allowing you to kind of revive those old negatives that were yeah, scanning, scanning, yeah. So one of my listeners has a question for you about lens choice. Lay it on me. So do you have a go-to uh, either telephoto or prime lens or both that you take with you that's just kind of like something that you know is going to be uh, a sure thing when you're shooting uh, music photography? Yeah, a 70-200 Zoom, 200 F2, and a 300-2.8. Okay. So the, 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 the 200, the 300 obviously being primes. Uh, 70 to 200, um, is, uh, is their long, is their medium, is Nikon's medium zoom, but uh, you know, I've got them all, you know, I've got the 14 to 24 and the 24 to 70 and the, and the 24 and the 50 and the 35 and the 20 and the 14 full frame fisheye, blah, blah, blah. Right. But you know, if it had to be two lenses and only two lenses, with a gun to my head, it'd be the 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 seventy to two hundred and probably twenty four maybe. Hmm. It's hard to say. Almost wide angle. Oh no, twenty four is wide angle, all right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It depends on the, the job, the end use, the venue, blah blah blah. You know. Yeah. But uh, it's a good question though. So whoever asked that, thank you. That was Tyler Blair who asked that question. Tyler, all right. Yeah. So um, another question from a listener, uh, Sonny Laform asked, uh, let me pull this up and make sure I'm asking it correctly. By the way, I love questions from from people, from listeners. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, I love it too. It, it kind of makes it a community. Yeah. What is his most, what is your most memorable image captured and why? Well, memorable to me versus memorable to the world are two very different things, but I'm going to assume he means memorable to the world. The most famous photo I've ever shot easily right now is the one of Freddie, uh, uh, where he's bending back with all of Wembley Stadium in the background. Yeah. Because Freddie Mercury is now the most famous guy who's ever lived on the planet. I mean, he's right up there. You got Jesus Christ, <laughs> Socrates. Genghis Khan or whatever, Freddie Mercury. But uh, that's become the photo. And I know it's a strong image. Yeah. I believe I've shot enough weak images to know. And uh, it was, that was actually the third frame I shot that day. And that was not the, that's not the Live Aid image. That's a year after Live Aid, right? No, it's the, it's the year after Live Aid. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. It's very mistakenly uh, called Live Aid sometimes. But And then there's the famous shot of Jimmy drinking the Jack Daniels and the shot of Robert holding the white dove, which I'm sure was a pigeon, really. Right. <laughs> and uh, those, those are iconic. The, the world may not, and I could care less if people know who shot, who shot it. But if they know the photo, that means I've done my job. Photos that I've shot that mean a lot to me, there's a Led Zeppelin one with the dry ice on the stage and I'm, I'm shooting from Jimmy's side of the stage. And I always used to hide behind Peter Grant because he was massive. So it was good, you know, <laughs> I could kind of hide behind him. And they're, they were playing uh, No Quarter, which has a big piano intro. And Robert sings uh, a verse, I think, before Jimmy comes in. 
and I shoot this picture, and I remember it was a 30th of 2.8. Don't ask me how I remember. And Jimmy's dragging on a cigarette, and he's looking right at me. And I'm, I'm shooting with a 35, so I'm maybe 20 feet from him. And he's looking right at me, and he comes over to say something to me. It's usually not a good thing when the main guy in the biggest band in the world wants to have a chat with you during <laughs> the show, okay? So I'm standing there, and he's like this. He says, is that the tour doctor in the front row? We had a tour doctor uh, on the road with us, Dr. Larry. Uh -huh. There's a picture in the book, a table of contents, where he's opening his bag because there are a lot of interesting things in Dr. Larry's bag. I saw the bag, yeah. <laughs> yeah. A lot of pills. And I, and I looked and I said, yeah, Jimmy, that's Dr. Larry. And Jimmy goes, fuck me. He pulls more birds than anyone in this band. <laughs> and then he goes back out on stage and plays the most searing guitar solo, standing right in front of Dr. Larry. <laughs> it, you know, that, that's a moment I will never forget. And, uh, and a few others. Oh, yeah. Well, that, that question was from Sonny LaForme. Hey, thanks, Sonny. Yeah. So the the iconic images that I really gravitate toward, the, the Sid Vicious shot taken three hours before the, the Sex Pistols broke up. Yep. I um, mean, you can just see, well, you see exactly you why. See why. You know? <laughs> <laughs> this is not going to last. This is a, not a long-term situation. No, no, this is not a healthy, a healthy guy in, in any way, shape, or form. It's funny. You know what? Kids, when I say kids, well, millennials, whatever, mm -hmm. love that photo. They love it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, they love the track marks. They love the bandages. They love the goober that's on the bass guitar. I think it shows what punk rock was to a lot of people back then and what, what it represented in its worst form in terms of not the music part of it, but just the, the attitude and the, the addiction issues and kind of the fuck it sort of um, approach to life. Right, right. However, there was no redeemable musical value in any of it, <laughs> if you ask me. I never yeah. understood. I mean, I remember shooting that night, Winterland, and what I remember most is the kids spitting on the band and the band spitting on the kids. Mm, yeah. Okay. Now, the Ra Ramones went to my high school seven years after I graduated. I was never in a punk. I happened to be on Google Earth last week, and I saw that they've changed the name of the street in front of Farsals High from 112th Street to Ramones Way. <laughs> oh, my God. I want to fucking kill myself. <laughs> Well, you know, it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's, I don't fine. get it. You know, I just don't get punk. I never did. I never really was into punk. I came into my musical consciousness probably more uh, late 70s, early 80s in sort of the rush and yes type of vibe. Really that late? Cause, cause, cause yes, I remember seeing them in 70 or 71. Yeah. I got into kind of, I mean, it, for, for, you're a prog, you're a prog guy. Yeah, yeah, and I, I was I was really into classic rock in the '80s after they had already become you know less relevant these these bands. But Were you into Emerson, Lake, and Palmer? Not much. I saw them at uh, the Gorge when Ken Kinnear. Uh, I think that's one of the shows that he gave me backstage, uh, right? Or a guest pass. He uh, snuck you in. Let's just say. Yeah, so. yeah, but uh, yeah, I saw I saw that band because because Keith and Greg were pretty close friends of mine and. 
And I thought they were amazing. Yeah. Myself. I mean, I was with them. Remember they had the tour of the orchestra mm-hmm. in 77? Well, they had to play without the orchestra after a couple of weeks because the rehearsal fees, because the musicians union were so exorbitant that uh, they couldn't afford to keep the orchestra. And I and Keith used to travel on his own bus. Greg was on his own bus and Carl was on his own bus. <laughs> and I remember being with Greg the day that Stuart, uh, their manager, said, you got to give up the orchestra. And I helped him come up with a set list that they could do as a three-piece without having to rehearse. Yeah. And he actually used a couple of my suggestions. That's awesome. And told me the others sucked, but. (laughs) (laughs) When you shot the Jimi Hendrix show very early in your career, you had the opportunity to shoot that. Right. Did you know how special he was back then, or was it just another job for you? What were you thinking about Jimi Hendrix? Well, it's, it's a good question, actually. In my high school, you know, Jimmy was a big deal. I mean, I knew Jimmy was a big deal, but I, if I'm not mistaken, his record came out right around the time of Disraeli years, the, the Cream record. Mm-hmm. So it was always like, like, are you into Jimi Hendrix experience or Cream? So you had to choose. Then it became, <laughs> were you into Jeff Beck, the Truth album, or the first Zeppelin album? Mm. So, you know, and I was... I was usually a guy that was into the English blues bands and also the San Francisco bands, not the dead. Right. The dead are more the devil than Getty, by the way. <laughs> but but uh, uh, the airplane, you know, I mean, I was a big Jefferson airplane and the doors, mm-hmm. you know. So, but I, no, I knew Jimmy was a big deal. But what I remember mostly from that night was that the McCoys opened for Jimmy and I was happened to be in the McCoy's dressing room after their set and Rick Derringer was changing and he took his jeans off and he had pink fishnet underwear on. And for years, I thought that all rock stars wore pink fishnet underwear. <laughs> <laughs> so tell, tell me about the dead. What, what is it about the dead that makes them the equivalent of Getty in terms of the evil scale? Oh God, where do I begin? It's not even worth the, bandwidth here they're just they're boring they're boring as hell they're boring as hell. you want to hear some bad harmony listen to any live grateful dead i mean i, I uh, on sirius xm somehow i got sucked into listening to a live uh was it come join uncle tom's band what's this, mm-hmm. what's the song yeah. uncle tom's band yeah, yeah. Or uncle well, john uncle john's uncle john, band not, yeah, not uncle well, tom. well yeah. bob uncle weir was singing in the key of k and everyone <laughs> else i mean it was horrific you know you could pick 20 random people off the street and have better harmony i i I agree with you there yeah and you know the 29 hour versions of whatever i mean i used to smoke bowls of hash and fall asleep on the lobby uh, on the floor of the lobby of the Fillmore east during the grateful dead show (laughs) i i found the same sirius xm channel uh grateful dead channel and i was playing that for my wife because i I went to a dead show and I do have some dead albums and I was playing this um, 1990 show where Jerry Garcia was singing some song and and they were trying to sing harmony as they always do. And my, and my wife was horrified by how awful, I mean, when you try to convince, (laughs) when you try to convince somebody who does not like the Grateful Dead that they're a good band, it's a very tough sell. No, that's never a battle you're going to win. Yeah. 
ever, ever, ever. And I remember when I still lived in New York, I was still in high school, and I met this girl. God, I don't know if she's still alive. Alice Pileski. And Alice Pileski, her claim to fame was she had dated Mickey Hart. Oh. <laughs> and who's Mickey Hart? She said, well, he's the, one of the dr- two drummers of the Grateful Dead. And I thought, well, that's cool. And then I heard the Grateful Dead, and I thought it wasn't so cool, and I didn't see her anymore. <laughs> but no, they're, they're, they're frighteningly boring. I just alienated a whole bunch of people, I know. But. No, I, I think it's a divisive band because either you, you love them or you, like, I think, feel the way you do, which is there's no redeeming, nothing musically redeeming about what they do. Ugh. Um, but I think not, it's a not culture. Not to mention the fact that, you know, don't go to a dead show and drink out of anything that you didn't actually open yourself. <laughs> But, but, yeah, you know, uh, I think it's more of a, com- I think it's a community of people. And I think it's more of like a, almost like a philosophy more than it is a band. Yeah. So it's communist China. <laughs> so <laughs> now, um, one of the, not to bring politics into it. Another, another striking thing about your book is that you, you tell this story about the first time that you shot Bob Dylan. And that was at this party that you were hired. Oh Yeah. <laughs> to uh, cover and 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 uh, you hated shooting parties and still do it sounds like i'm the worst party photographer ever yeah but but you you're shooting as people are leaving the party and and you shoot a picture of bob dylan and you're, you're self-conscious about it can you tell the listeners about what happened there yeah well first well my partner andy kent and i had to cover this uh, it was a rod stewart press party and uh, at one point the girl from Warner's uh, said, well, okay, one of you needs to be outside because there were a lot of famous people there and one inside. So I said, Tan, all right, I'll go outside. And uh, this is before there used to be gaggles of paparazzi everywhere. So the first people who leave are Paul and Linda. And Paul looks not very happy and Linda's giving me a nasty look. But, uh, you know, it's Paul and Linda. He's been photographed 8 billion times. And then Cher comes walking out and saying something to me like get out of my way or some i don't remember but then she had just started seeing greg and greg was behind her and i thought oh at least greg knows me and he'll smooth it out and everything and then right behind greg is bob and i take one picture of bob and he says you're a leech <laughs> you leech you're leech and he's you know bob's got these steely little eyes and when they lock on you it's petrifying and he called me a leech and i agreed with him yeah and it was the last pretty much the last party i ever shot bob dylan called me a leech but when when bob talks people listen you know and then but what was also striking about that story is that what happened after you were called a leech by bob dylan is you had access to bob dylan shows and backstage opportunities yeah. but then there's this call from tom petty to shoot the wilburys in the 80s can you tell us about that yeah um and i love the chapter i wrote in the book because i was trying to come up with a new kind of lead and i said oh, I'll, I'll just try to do a the verbatim phone call oh yeah from from mary clauser who worked for tom it's captivating and it's it's i mean obviously i didn't take notes with, during the original phone call but i recreated it pretty much verbatim I was sitting home one day and Mary calls and after the small talk, I said, what are you doing? I said, nothing. She said, Tom wants to know if you could come out and he's doing some recording with some of his friends. I said, 
sure, you know, what time and what time and where? And she said, hang on, blah, blah, blah. And she comes back on and says, Tom's on the other line. I'll have him call you in a couple of minutes. So I said, okay. I called my assistant, who luckily was available. And I said, just come over. We're going to have to go to Encino. And then the phone rings. I pick it up. Hello. And I hear, hey, Neil, how you doing? It's Tom. You know, it's the Southern drawl. I say, hey, Tom, blah, 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 blah. So what's the address? He goes, well, I'm not sure the address, but you get on the 101 and you go past the 405 and you take it to, uh, you take it to, to, uh, you take it to, talk to George. He hands the phone in this very distinctive Liverpudlian accent comes on and I immediately figured out it was George Harrison. and I remember nothing about the rest of the phone call. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, we ended up going out to Dave Stewart's house where they were recording. And it was, it was me and my sister at the time, one roadie and five band members. And that was it. Mm. You know, Bob and Tom, George and uh, Jeff and Roy Orbison. And I'd met George once or twice before that, but he took me in the other room and he said, okay, now we just need some quick group shots here and there. I wasn't supposed to, I, one of the shots was supposed to be for a guitar endorsement or some kind of ad, but it was a quick, the whole thing was going to be like a half an hour, 45 minutes. And he said, okay, when Bob's in the right mood, then we'll shoot it. I'll, I'll like give you the, the sign, the high sign when Bob's ready. So George is, George is on eggshells around him. Yeah. 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 <laughs> and then Tom comes in. Hey, Neil, how you doing? Big hug. Big hug. And Tom says, Okay, so when Bob is ready to, you know, <laughs> he's giving me the exact same rap about. And I'm thinking, you're a Beatle, you're Tom Petty. Why are you on eggshells about Bob, you know? And that's the way it was, because Bob is Bob. Yeah. And, and you had to, I mean, you had to navigate those types of personalities your entire career in terms of almost being like a rock star whisperer. Well, yeah, I mean, but, but again, my personality is, is one that I, I, it's really not usually a problem. Bob was a little tough. The worst was Barbara Streisand. <laughs> she fired me after I worked for one. Really? But yeah, I don't, I don't know. Why, does, why did she fire you? It's not that she fired me. She just didn't hire me for the bigger gig that I was supposed to do after this rehearsal. Oh, uh, because I gave her shit for making me stand in a camera. You know, she can only, she, you can only photograph one side of her face. I don't know if you're aware. I, of I remember reading that. Yeah. And even if you watch the movie she's been in, certainly the one she's directed, most of the shots are from the one side. You can't do a whole movie only shot from one side. But um, she did this dress rehearsal on a stage, I think, in Culver City. And it was before one of her big comeback New Year's performances in Vegas. And uh, so this would have been early December. And the, the label had hired me. And they, I had a stand like in back of these 20 rows of seats for friends and family on this side. And I was not liking what I was getting. So during the intermission, I go into her dressing room and it's just her and Marty Ehrlichman. And I kind of took the piss out of her. I said, pretend that you're me, and I'm Barbara Streisand. I'm thinking that that might not be the best angle, that I could maybe get better pictures from there because of the light. And she looked at Marty, and she looked at me, and she said, yeah, yeah, right. And then I was ushered out, and 
and never got hired for the big news <laughs> <Eve> show. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> so I know we're well past an hour now, and I, I want to be respectful of your time. So, a couple more questions. Hey, it's a pandemic. I got nowhere to go. <laughs> okay. No, great. A couple more. So, so <laughs> I, you know, one thing I noticed in- I don't tell that Streisand story that often. It's so good. <laughs> That's good. It's a good one. So, you talk about, there's a quote in your book where you say, and this is you quoting someone else about, we're all circling the same drain. And and you're talking about mortality, I think, a little bit toward toward the end of the book. Yeah, yeah. Do, do you look at photographs as a way of capturing forever, and basically making the mortal immortal in some ways, taking these moments? Yeah, absolutely. I could have said it better myself. That's those are the things I can leave when I'm gone, when I'm dust. You know, I, I had this weird epiphany one one night. We were doing an exhibition, I think it was maybe last year or the year before in Boston, and there were about 40 photographs up on the wall. And I thought, if each one of those photographs was shot, let's say at a 30th of a second, okay, mm -hmm. then 40 of them would have been 40 times a 30th of a second in real time, which would be one and a quarter seconds. And I thought, wow, a lifetime shooting pictures and I've documented 1.25 seconds. <laughs> yeah. It's a kind of a weird, strange way of looking at it. But um, you know what? I'm thrilled to be able to leave anything behind that people will remember. And I truly mean that. And I'm humbled by that. And I never dreamt that any of that would happen. But the, the day, the day I, I heard the thing about the circling the drain was I was having a really rough day. My friend Ken had passed away and my dad had passed away. He lived to be 94 mm. and, you know, had a great life. But I was having a rough day and I was talking to someone. He said, don't forget, we're all circling the same drain. And it was, it seemed to have just the right amount of fatalism and whimsy and, you know, all of that stuff because it's true. Um, but I may not be here, but Freddie Mercury will live on, you know, and, and it's great to be able to, to know that not my name, but the images will be enjoyed, hopefully enjoyed. Yeah. You know, for me, the, the, I'm glad that you talked about this subject because for me, there's something comforting about capturing not just an image, but an image that really captures the essence of a person and a moment, a really special moment. And that's what you've done for 50 years. And there's so, that's why it's so comforting to take this book and it's a tactile experience too, because yeah. it's it's so it's it's glossy on some pages, and I think there might be some matte pages in there. It's like you're holding a piece of history, rock history, when you're looking at this book. Yeah, it's well, and that's that was the objective was to do a book that could be set apart from that big pile of rock books that people have in the corner of their living rooms, mm -hmm. and to get my personality on the page in pictures and in words. And I figured if I can do that, I've got something that can stand apart from everyone else's book. And I, I, I know I achieved it. Yeah, you absolutely did. Uh, and plus, it's 4.5 pounds. It's a lot of fucking paper. <laughs> um, <laughs> Substantial um, for sure. But I also, I love the, the cover photo because it doesn't have a rock star on it. And it's, it's not Keith Moon's drum set, by the way. It's Roger Taylor's. And then the shot on the back of Jimmy is, is if 
to the extent that I have any photographic style at all, that's my style. That kind of yeah, the spot, the spotlight, almost overly the dramatic. Shadow and the, yeah, yeah, I mean, it, it, it's 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 the romanticism of of what I do, you know. So tell us about your next book, your your Queen book that's going to come out in October. The Queen book, it's called Queen: The Neil Preston Photographs. I wanted to call it something very different, but it wouldn't pass the censors. And uh, it's all it's only my photos. A, a lot of stuff that hasn't been published before. Brian wrote a little something at, at in the intro. Roger wrote Roger wrote something great. It was something like, you know, we, we loved having Neil around. Blah 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 blah. And I had to write this because he knows too much, and this will shut him up. <laughs> <laughs> Which is very Roger. Oh yeah. But uh, the book is going to have a lot of stuff that no one's ever seen. And I worked part of six tours with them and was on stage with them at Live Aid and et cetera, et cetera. Uh, it's the same publisher as my book, Real Art Press. And uh, it can be pre-ordered uh, at www.realartpress.com. That's R-E-E-L, as in movie reel, artpress.com. And I think the pub date is October 29th. But uh, Queen fans... Are, this this is this is the heroin that they crave. Trust me on this one. So it looks amazing. I I've seen the exciting. I've seen the cover on Amazon. You did see yeah. the cover? Yeah, the cover doesn't have, the cover doesn't have a, a rock star on it either. So it's funny. It's got that line of soldiers, and I got an email from a kid who is convinced that the third soldier from the left is his dad. <laughs> now keep in mind, I'm three hundred yards away with a. 400 and a doubler but we're very excited about it and it's you can read people can read more about it at queenonline.com on the band's website and i'm uh, you know me and brian have been wanting to do something together for a long time and, and this is a big deal for them and especially for me uh, it's exciting for me too i'm definitely going to pre-order the book and uh and look forward to receiving that in october yeah and i wrote some good stuff for it too I say, I love writing. You have a knack for it. Most of my close friends have all been writers in my life. And uh, I've, I didn't realize I was a frustrated writer. <laughs> well, you know, you, you don't write. It's not like a novel that you wrote in this, this book. No, it's conversational. Yeah. But it's, yeah, it's very, you know, what it does is you, it gives you a great sense of who you are with a combination of, of writing and, and photographs, but writing that describes the photographs that you're looking at. Right. Right. And what you go through making those photographs. Right. Quite a journey. And now the, the next question I have may or may not make it into the final episode here. We'll see. I'm curious if you have any memories of my dad, Greg Smith, when he flew for Hard or any other band. Well, I remember him. Well, I remember Ken flying the airplane for a while. And then, but I do remember Greg. I don't remember hanging out with him. I remember seeing him backstage at some shows. I mean, I did so many hard shows and I wish that I had more to say other than I remember him being a very, very sweet man. Thank you for saying that. I mean, he, he died pretty young back in 2003. So oh, I'm sorry. I, what I try to do is um, because I, he was on the road so much touring with bands, mm -hmm. not just Hart, but um, Neil Young and Joni Mitchell and mm -hmm. Def Leppard, John 
Cougar Mellencamp, but um, he was gone a lot. And so didn't really get a chance to know him like a lot of kids get to know their fathers. And so through people like you or Howard Lease or mm-hmm. Ann and Nancy Wilson, yeah. after he died, I, I try to reach out to them and, and just see what I can find out about my dad. But I'll tell you what, uh, next time I'm in LA at the office, I'll try and go through the heart file, which is about size of the Empire State Building and see if I have any photos of them. Oh, that would be awesome. Because there's, there's, I mean, a good chance I would have, you know, shot something. Oh yeah. He was there. I mean, he was always backstage and yeah. he, I, he would, um, sometimes he would. Hang- I, 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 I'd say it's probably 90, 10 that I have something of him. Right. Yeah. One, one of the things he used to do um, and this was a story that Ann and Nancy told me after he died. They sent an e- email through Carol Peters, their manager. But he used to hang out with Cameron in the plane or at the hangar during the concert and afterwards because they they weren't always into you know the concert scene. Um, mm-hmm. so I know, yeah. you know Cam- Cameron really wasn't a partier, but well, yeah, and, and you know he might have been married to Nancy, but that doesn't mean he's gonna. Have- watch every song of every show you know i mean right if you're if you're on at every show every night i mean you're not going to watch every minute of every show you're just not so right yeah well um neil uh, people can find you at prestonpictures.com yeah, right and there's a way to email me through the website and i answer all emails to the best of my ability sometimes long and voluminous sometimes short and snarky <laughs> but um no, it's uh, people just ask me all kinds of stuff. I love it because I know what it means to be a fan. So, yeah, you know, you know it's, it's fine. And, and again, Queen Book pub date is October 29, www.realartpress.com to pre-order. And then the first book is Neil Preston, Exhilarated and Exhausted, same publisher. Yeah. So I don't know if they're doing any, any uh, bundles. <laughs> oh, that, that's a, yeah, just in time for the holidays. So that would be a great gift. Or as we used to say, bindles at any rate. Uh, yeah. And, and I'll exciting. put your social, I'll put your social media links on uh, my show notes as well. Okay. So anybody who's interested in any of the um, things we talked about in this interview, links will be up on my website and um, encourage everybody to go out and not just buy the exhilarated and exhausted book, but pre-order that queen book because it just looks amazing. It's going to be great. Yeah. yeah. Thanks a lot, Neil, for your time. Anytime and goodbye world. And uh, it's uh, 111 degrees today here in the desert. So wow. <laughs> if, if, okay. if, if, if you're sitting anywhere cooler than 111, I'm very jealous. <laughs> hey, thank you for listening. And I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If so, I have a favor to ask. Can you go to wherever you listen to podcasts and leave me a review? Your feedback is what keeps this podcast going. You can also check us out on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook with the handle at DreamPathPod. And as always, go find your dream path.